it is a joy and privilege to be here this morning. Greetings from Sovereign Grace Chapel in Youngstown, Ohio. Pastor Joe um, mentioned uh, kind of what he's done in the past several years with uh, this series on Psalms, and I'm delighted uh, when he mentioned a couple of different options for Psalms. Immediately once I heard Psalm 2, uh, that's some very low-hanging fruit. It's, it's hard to preach a bad sermon from Psalm 2. So if this winds up a bad sermon, I really botched it, okay? You could pretty much just read the passage and be ready to jump up with joy. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And notice the, all the capitals there. That is Yahweh, the covenant God, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me ask the Lord's help. O Lord, open the eyes of our heart that we might see. Allow us to see wondrous things in your law, O Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are ready to receive and believe and respond with faith and obedience. Lord, I also specifically pray for those who are here this morning who may be interested in Christianity, maybe even hostile. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would bow their knee to King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may have heard this past week the Center for Disease Control released a study, a study with very sobering results concerning the emotional state of our young people, and particularly females. The study said that nearly three in five U.S. teen girls felt persistent sadness or hopelessness in the year 2021. It was double that of boys, representing nearly a 60% increase. One in three seriously considered suicide, up nearly 60% from a decade ago. And then when you broaden those numbers out to the entire demographic of this country, suicide is the second leading cause of death 
for people ages 10 to 34. 50,000 people die every year due to suicide. 12.2 million American adults seriously think about suicide, according to 2020. And 3.2 million came up with a detailed plan, and 1.2 million went through with that plan. Indeed, it is a real problem of despair and hopelessness. A problem that the scriptures are not ignorant to. The plight of humanity and the misery of living in this fallen world outside of Eden, not the paradise that God originally created. But it's in the midst of that that God gives us hope, real hope to battle against the despair, not a mere kind of wishful thinking, the kind of wishful thinking that the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre spoke of when just months before he was to die, the famous philosopher atheist declared that he so strongly resisted feelings of despair that he, will, he would say to himself, I shall die in hope. And he would repeat that, I shall die in hope. And then in profound sadness, he would add, but hope needs a foundation. You see, the reality is, is that your hope is only as good as its object. If the object of your hope is a lie or something that is mere wishful thinking, it's not a secure hope. It won't bring genuine joy and happiness. But this psalm gives us a pathway to hope and, dare I say, happiness. In fact, that's how the psalm ends If you notice the last phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That word translated blessed is a Hebrew word that carries the idea of joyful, content, happy are all who take refuge in him. In fact, the the first two psalms really, as many have, have suggested, are kind of Pillars that stand at the entryway of the entire 150 Psalms. Psalm 1 begins, as you may be familiar, with blessed. And Psalm 2 ends with blessed, suggesting that these two Psalms are certainly to be taken together. There's also repetition of words in Psalm 1 that we also find in Psalm 2. That word to meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night that we see in Psalm 1, it comes up in a strangely contrasting way in Psalm 2 where the the nations conspire. It's the same Hebrew word. They're meditating, muttering to one another. How can we overthrow the shackles of Yahweh? Quite a different kind of meditation from Psalm 1. And so these two psalms, as I mentioned, are are pillars at the entryway into the entire Psalter. And they give us directions, in a very real sense, two ways to go, either the way of the Lord or the way of the world. And so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about three compelling reasons for you to have hope. The first 
I'm calling the insurrection against Yahweh and his king. The insurrection, the insubordination, the rebellion. Notice how the psalm starts out. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Notice it comes across as a question. Why? Why are they doing this? This is utter futility. And notice, who is, who is it that's doing it? It's the nations or the peoples. And what are they doing? They're raging. They're, they're like waters that are raging. And much like waters, you know, sometimes there's movement that's, that's mild. Sometimes there's waves that are, that are, are, are just dashing against the shores. And, and there's ebbs and flows throughout human history of this kind of raging of the nations. During the days in which the ancient Hebrews were, we see this, right? We see those 430 years when the Hebrews are inside of Egypt and, and when God suggests that that Moses will be the deliverer and, and Moses confronts Pharaoh, he says, who is this Yahweh that I should obey him? Whoa. Defying, raging against the Lord. We see this when the Amalekites are assaulting the Hebrews as they're on their way out of Egypt. They attack the rear guard, which would have contained the people with you know, physical infirmities, the elderly, the disability, and, and they're raging against the Lord. We see it dur- during the time of David, the author of this psalm, when we see the Philistines and, and the Arameans and the different people groups that surround them. It, it's, it's wonderfully encapsulated in the reality of that large giant, that Philistine raging against Yahweh, saying, who is this who comes after me with sticks? Remember the Philistines, young people? Remember Goliath? Didn't go well for Goliath. He had his head separated from his shoulders as he sought to defy the Lord. And so the psalmist here asks this question, why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? They're they're plotting, they're scheming. And notice in verse 2, it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And as I mentioned in the scripture reading, notice all the capitals. This is Yahweh. This is not just against God in general. This is against the true and living covenant God of Israel. Against Yahweh. But then also notice this. He adds, and against his anointed. Against his anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're raging against the Lord and His anointed. Literally, in the Hebrew, Mashiach. Sound familiar? Messiah. The the Greek equivalent is Christos, Christ. This is a, a word that is pregnant with so much meaning. The the uh, ancient kings in Israel. You perhaps you remember remember when Samuel was instructed to anoint David. You know he's brought to Jesse's home, and and the different sons are around, and they're you know uh, you know look very royal and kingly, and and Samuel thinks well maybe it's them, but it's it's neither of them. Remember it's that little ruddy shepherd boy, right? 
And Samuel anoints him. But it wasn't only the kings that were anointed, it was also the prophets. And it was the priests also. If you look at Leviticus chapter 9, there was a whole anointing ceremony for the priests and the prophets. And so really these are the three major offices that we see in the Old Testament of prophets, priests, and kings that find their rich and climactic fulfillment in the Lord Jesus as the ultimate high priest, as the ultimate king, and as the ultimate prophet. And it's no accident that seven times in the New Testament, maybe more actually, they cite this psalm as being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And so the anointed one ultimately is the Lord Jesus. The, the, the nations, the rulers, taking their stand. And, the, you know, and, and, and notice the, the kind of this kind of gathering. They're, they're taking counsel together. They're joining together. They're joining hands maliciously against the Lord. This reminds me almost of maybe something like the United Nations in New York City. Or maybe something like the World Economic Forum where all these elites of society you know, gather together and fly there in their private jets to rebuke everybody else for using too much fuel. Klaus Schwab says, no more hamburgers for everybody. You will eat insects for the rest of your life, you peons. Either way, this is a kind of evil, malicious conspiring against the Lord and his anointed. To be sure, this... And then notice... Notice what they're saying. They speak. The psalmist records something of their conversation in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Their interpretation and view of the Lord and His authority is one that is not good. They do not like it. They interpret His authority as shackles. Shackles to be ripped off. Shackles to be broken. Shackles to be unleashed so that real freedom can be enjoyed. And the tragic reality is that these shackles are actually the Lord's fatherly kindness and love. His authority, as all good biblical authority, is exercised for the good of those underneath it. Just in case you wonder that, that's how parenting works, right? Children need good authority over them that is concerned and loves them. And when they don't have that, they don't have that good protection. And so it is with the Lord's authority. He's the one who gives us His kind commands for the good and flourishing of humanity. And as we see it this day, the nations rage and says, say, we will not have Him to rule over us. And they do so to their own destruction. I mean, it, just since it's such a common theme in our culture today, take the reality of the sexual ethics of the Bible, what the Bible teaches about sexual relations only inside the confines of marriage. Think if humanity actually subjected themselves to God's kindness in that area. 
How many abortions would there be? How many fatherless homes would there be? How many homes would there be where there wasn't, they haven't experienced the, the sorrows and heartache of divorce? How would the health be of homosexual males who, according to some of the latest studies, live 25 years less, the lifespan is 25 years less than heterosexual males. But you're not going to hear that on the major media outlets. But God has given these good commands for our good, for our human flourishing. But the nations rage. They say, we will not. We must break these chains. And and friends, there may be some of you who are at the crossroads and you're thinking about Christianity and and, and maybe you're a young person, you're thinking about going the way of the world, this way of pleasure, this way of promised freedom. And I tell you on the authority of God's Word, it only brings misery and ruin. It only does. God's authority, His commands are not to abuse us, are not to enslave us, but they're the kind, loving directions of a father who knows us, who knows what's good for us. But this is the reality of humanity. This is the reality of humanity that rages against the Almighty. In fact, I believe it's in one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons that colonial pastor theologian where he he describes a scenario of what if God vacated his throne if God the almighty vacated his throne but for a moment humanity would dash for that throne and sit down and crown him and herself with the crown of deity and the first order that man who has ascended to the throne of deity would do would be to order the execution of the deity. And if you doubt that, read the Gospels. Because the greatest revelation of God, the Almighty who walked on the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus, when He came, He was executed publicly. This is the sobering reality of humanity and this is the sad reality of where each and every human heart is and left unchecked would go in a flurry of rage. I mean, think about when children are young. They, like all of us, believe that the entire universe should revolve around me. (laughs) Mine. You know, that's one of the early words. Mine and no. That's in us. But notice God's response, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Notice that the Lord here is lowercase o-r-d, which is Adonai, the, the master, the king. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And, and I, I don't think this is a kind of sinister laughing. <laughs> no, no. 
But it is a kind of laughing that's mockery. Like, you know, this is some of you parents or even children who have younger siblings. You know, there's that toddler. It's getting close to nap time. And that child doesn't get his or her own way. And you know what they do. They throw themselves on the ground. And then you may pick them up. And they may even start swinging. I mean, I'm not saying I have experienced this, but I I, I could imagine. And you know, and that child who's in a rage, you know, each swing, you know, it's 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 almost like silly, right? And and you pick up that child and you incarcerate them in the household crib for their nap. You know, but that's the silliness. Or, or imagine an older sibling holding the head of a younger sibling who's swinging and, and, and you just, you're tempted to laugh, right? Because it's, it's, it's insanity that this child thinks he can prevail. And so it is with humanity, mere creatures of dust who rage against Almighty, who try to throw off his shackles, who, who say, we will be the boss. It's utter insanity. Ludicrous. Now, if you're following my outline this morning, I said three compelling reasons to have hope. The first is the insurrection of humanity, and you may think, well, that doesn't sound very hopeful. I'm so glad you read Acts chapter 4 this morning. Because Acts chapter 4, in God's response, he who sits in the heavens laughs, highlights why that in the grand scheme of things you can have hope in the midst of the insurrection of humanity, in the midst of the rebellion of humanity. Because you remember in that scripture reading in Acts, it started out with the miracle and then the arrest of Peter and John. They're trying to incarcerate the gospel. But Peter and John say, whom should we obey, man or God? We're going to keep on preaching. And it's in that context, in verse 23 of Acts 4, it says, when they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported uh, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they quote Psalm 2 after they've been released. And then they explain Psalm 2 in verse 27, for truly In this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So so they're applying Psalm 2 to this situation. Namely, this, this is just like it was when Jesus was crucified. The nations raged and they sought to put to death Jesus and they executed him. But then Peter and John go on to explain what these rulers were doing. To do whatever your hand predestined to take place. In other words, the swinging 
of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all that they did in raging against the Lord was doing exactly what the Lord intended to accomplish His purposes. So friends, this is huge. Because we are bombarded every day Headlines in the news, social media, podcasts, everything all around us, YouTube streams that are that we're 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 hearing the plotting, the devising, the nations raging, and and we're seeing the we're witnessing the, the collapse of Western culture. We're looking at our children and grandchildren saying, My goodness, what will the world be like that they will live in? And you're tempted to despair. But I want to tell you on the authority of God's word. (laughs) Peter and John were able to have hope and boldness to proclaim the gospel because they knew that whatever humanity did, they couldn't stop God's purposes. They could not. God triumphs. And it's utter futility to rage against the Lord, better to submit to Him. That's how the psalm's going to end. And so it is with humanity today. You think, even throughout history, I think it was the dictator of China, Mao Zedong, who boasted that he had eradicated Christianity from China. This was in the, during the Cultural Revolution of the late 60s. Estimates today are that there may be between 120 to 180 million Christians in China. There may be more Christians in China than anywhere else on earth. He thought. But he was like that child swinging. And the older brother just holding his head, not landing one punch. Well, that's the insurrection against Yahweh, the installation of Yahweh's king. Notice verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is angry. He's angry at the rebellion. And notice in his response, he's saying he will terrify them in his fury. And, this, and he begins to speak. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's talking about Jerusalem. That ancient city that sits up on a hill. It's just a blip on the map. I mean, you might miss the exit. It may have one traffic light. It's so small. And in and, and, and the, the watching world might hear this and think, that's where you're going to put your king? And yet that's where he puts his king. And notice, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. There's no election. There's no campaigns. There's no bombardment of constant advertisements for Yahweh's son? No. He puts him on the throne. There will be no election day. There will only be installation. He will put his king on his throne. Verse 7, I will tell the decree 
The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is an allusion to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember when David uh, was resolving that he wanted to build God a house? And he initially tells the prophet Nathan, this is my plan. And Nathan initially says, yeah, sure, go ahead, build a house, build a temple for Yahweh. But then God speaks to Nathan and says, no, 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 he's not going to be the one to build the house. And it's in that context that Nathan prophesies concerning David that God was going to build an eternal house, namely a dynasty through David. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, my loyal love, will not depart from him as I, look, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David and so again here's this it's sometimes called the Davidic covenant the Davidic promise where God said to David David you will have an eternal kingdom but did you notice in that there was a kind of caveat if your descendant sins I will discipline and and that's what we see with the different kings of Israel until the king came until Jesus is standing before John the Baptist. He's being baptized. He goes under the water, comes up out of the water, and there's a voice from heaven. Do you remember what that voice said? This is my beloved son. That's Davidic covenant. God's saying, this is that promised king. And as I mentioned, at least seven different times in the New Testament, this passage is cited as being fulfilled in Jesus as the Son. He's the Son. He's the promised Davidic King. We see this in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, when Paul as recorded by Luke, says, and we bring good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, who would, uh, uh, Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Don't trip up on that phrase, begotten. I, I don't think this is a passage necessarily, necessarily speaking of the eternal sonship of the eternal uh, uh, son of God, but it's, it's a Davidic promise. It's highlighting that relationship between God's mediatorial king, the Lord Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the eternal son of God, but I don't think this is what this passage is keying in on. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. We're back in Psalm 2 in case you're wondering. 
Psalm 2, 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow. So here it's getting, it's getting a little nasty, right? This installed king has a billy club, an iron billy club. And he's crushing the nations. And, and, and here's the interesting thing. It says, ask of me. It's, it's like the father speaking to the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And there almost seems to be a, a kind of a contradiction. These are the same nations that are raging. These are the same nations that are plotting, that are conspiring in in. The father says to the son, ask and I will give them to you. And then there's this explanation that he's going to crush them. So which is it? Is he going to receive them or crush them? Well, that's why you have to read the rest of the psalm. It depends on how you respond to him. Whether you get his open hand or his boot. There's a difference. There's a difference. He says he's going to crush them like a rod of iron. And this is what we see when we get to the New Testament, right? We see on the one hand, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So here's this, this, this what we see in Revelation, that Jesus has a people who are his heritage, his inheritance, we also see this with what's commonly called the Great Commission, right? That's our mission field. We, we, we sang it uh, from Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the Hebrews. No. Of what? The nations. That's our call, is to bring this message to the nations. And if they subject themselves to the king, they become part of his heritage and his possession. But if they refuse, he crushes them. Years ago, my, my father was a garbage man for 25 years. And in my late high school and college years, I'm sure this was not, this was not legal, but I would work with him. And... Uh, the funnest thing to throw in the back of a hopper on one of those garbage trucks, kid you not, was a toilet. <laughs> you know, boys like to break things, you know. And we would pick that thing up and I would take it like a shot put and hurl it in there and watch it shatter to thousands of tiny pieces. Very therapeutic. I, I, I recommend it. But on a more sober note, this is what Jesus will do with the nations. He will crush them. And this is why we need 
to be on a rescue mission to the nations, to bring this message to the nations, bow to King Jesus before it's too late. As he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preaching on this. He says, the anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. The anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. He will rule. He will reign forever. There will be no competitors. And those who are part of his inheritance, who bow their knee to him, who trust in him, they become part of his team. And shockingly, in Revelation 2.26, another one of these citations of Psalm 2, it gives a promise to the church, God's people, the one who conquers and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself received authority from my father. Now that's a shocker. That's quite a job description for believers in the future. To rule with Jesus with a rod of iron. And so this is why it's imperative that you get this last point. This is the, 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 the reason to have hope is first of all, the insurrection against the Lord because they will not overthrow God's plan. Secondly, the installation of the king. This world is heading in a direction, it seems aimless, it seems chaotic, but it is heading in a direction in which Jesus will reign forever. And now thirdly, the invitation of Yahweh and his king. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. It's like, wise up here. Right? Screw your head on straight. Listen up. Be wise and be warned. And this is the idea. To be wise is to live properly in God's world. And we know from the book of Proverbs, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, subject your mind to this truth, to this reality. Submit to it. Don't kick against it. Don't chafe against it. Subject yourself to Jesus. Submit. And notice who his audience is. He starts at the top. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. He's now going after the top, the upper echelon of society. There's something intoxicating about power. Often, being elevated to positions of power brings with it temptations towards pride and arrogance. We see that with Nebuchadnezzar. We see that with Pharaoh. And friends, we see it in our day. And just as God has addressed those kings, those leaders, those rulers in times past, so he addresses all the rulers of the nations today and everybody beneath them. He's addressing the Xi Jinping's of this world, the Kim Jong-uns, the, 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 the Vladimir Putins, and yes, dare I say, the Joseph R. Bidens of this world. 
And he's saying, listen up, be warned. But he's also speaking of anybody conspiring underneath them and going along with their plots to overthrow Yahweh. He's saying, stop, stop it. It's foolish. Be wise and be warned. Judgment is coming. Submit your mind, but also submit your emotions. Notice he says in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Subject yourself to him. He is good. He is kind. But notice there almost seems to be a contradiction here. He says to rejoice with trembling. You see, when you subject yourself to this king, there is a joy, but there is also a trembling. Because his wrath may soon be kindled, and you perish in the way, verse 12. His wrath is quickly kindled. That's why there is a trembling. But there is also a joy for those who have subjected themselves to him because they are rescued from his wrath. You see, I was thinking this morning about prairie fires. Fires on the prairie in early America, on the frontiers. Imagine a dry summer and a a raging fire that's just moving at a at, at very fast pace towards a small town. Well, what would that town do in order to not experience the fury of the fire? Well, they would start their own fire. Start their own fire around the village, right? So that when that fire, that prairie fire came raging, it would stop. Why? Because fires had already been there. You see, my friends, this son whom has been installed on his throne 2,000 years ago came to this earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. And on that Roman cross, he endured the fury of the fires of hell. So that anybody who stands in his place, who unites him or herself to him and subjects themselves by being wise, by being warned, by serving him and rejoicing with trembling and kissing him as we're going to see in a minute, they become forgiven. The fires will not touch you. Because Jesus endured those fires. But friend, you have to believe. You have to subject yourself. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. To kiss the son. This is a kiss of submission. Just like perhaps a, a royalty or king might hold out his hand and his subjects bow down and kiss the hand of that royalty. So the idea is that you bow your knee to King Jesus and you subject yourself to him in humble, loving submission. Say, Jesus, you're the king. You own me. Friend, have you ever kissed the son? You must kiss him. His wrath may soon be kindled. You have been plotting and conspiring in vain. 
You need to subject yourself to Him. If you are going to be on the right side of history, you need to kiss the Son before it's too late. Kiss the Son or kiss it all goodbye. Or as we see here, take refuge in Him. It says, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Take refuge in Him because you cannot take refuge from Him. Instead of running from God angry, run to Him reconciled to His Son, the Lord Jesus. And this should give us hope in this topsy-turvy, very strange world. Several years ago, perhaps you remember, it's about seven years ago this past January, the Cleveland Cavaliers were playing against the Golden State Warriors. Now, if you're like me and you're a lifelong Cleveland sports fan, it's not often you get to the championship, and it wasn't looking good. The first two games, the Cavs were blown out by the Warriors by a total of 48 points. They were down 3-1. to one. Looked like the season was over. Do you remember they hustled back and won the next three games to bring the only Cleveland professional sports championship in my lifetime to Cleveland. And there was tremendous anxiety, right? And even at times despair as you watch that series. In that final game, it went down to the wire. Now, my, my wife never grew up much with sports, but she, she gets basketball. It's not that complex, right? You get the ball in the hoop, two points, stand behind the line, shooting is three points. One team has one basket, the other team got another basket. And she was anxiety-ridden watching this series. Again, there was times of despair. But you know what? The next day, after the Cavs had won, I caught her watching the game again. <laughs> and just enjoying it. Why? Why did she have hope? She knew the final score. Friends, we know the final score. That's our hope. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for your word, these promises. As Bunyan's Christian, in the midst of Doubting Castle, under the torments of giant despair, pulled the key of promise out of his pocket and got out of Doubting Castle. So, Lord, I pray that some this morning might get out of doubting castle and evade giant despair as they lay hold of your precious promises. In Jesus' name, amen.